0: 21st century Westerners like us are um, junkies, all of us are junkies, really, in that we live in an entertainment culture, and that means that we're always looking for the kind of the next high, we're looking for that hit of the thing which makes us feel good, gives us a bit of a buzz, uh, which is different from the ordinary, the mundane of life. Uh, We live, we tend to live for the high moments. But the reality is that while we live it for the high moments, most of the time we're living in the normal. We're living in the routine. And uh, that's, a, that's a challenge in our, in our society. It's a challenge particularly for those of us who are Christians. It's a challenge for us in the church in terms of those of us who are followers of Jesus being faithful disciples. Because the, the water in which we swim is when we're looking for the high moments, And we don't tend to do so well in the routine, in the ordinary, in the normal. And uh, disciples of Jesus are meant to do well in the everyday, in the normal. And actually part of the challenge Without our what we expect in terms of, we look for encounter with God, and that can bring a challenge as well, that if you have a really powerful encounter with God, which is something that we seek, we're looking for those, please God, fresh experiences of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God amongst us. You might have a real kind of sense of strong meeting with God on a Sunday morning, or maybe you go away, like the young people have been recently at New Day, and you, and you come back, and the Monday morning, it feels a bit different. And that can be a challenge for us as well, that kind of swinging between experiences of just dealing with the everyday. And the letter of the Apostle James to the churches helps us to deal with that kind of reality, with Monday morning uh, reality. You know, the the world is is a tough place, and um, being a Christian can be tough as well. And we can step from Sunday morning kind of piety into uh, Monday worldliness. On a Sunday, and we enjoy meeting with one another, we enjoy meeting with Jesus, and then we get to Monday, and it's back into the normal and the routine, and suddenly we can become just like everybody else, and our attitudes, and our thoughts, and our actions, indistinguishable from anybody else. And what the Apostle James is encouraging the Christians he's writing to is not, not to live that way, not to live kind of swinging between seeking high moments and then crashing when life's ordinary, and not, and not to swing between kind of a, a, a holiness when you're together and a worldliness when you're not. Uh, not to, not for Christianity, not to be private. Now, often people say that my faith my is my private, and really the Bible knows nothing about that, and what we're going to see in James is that our faith is not to be a private matter, no, it's a lived-out reality, Monday through Friday, as well as Saturday and Sunday. And uh, that's what the Apostle James is encouraging the churches and encouraging the teaching in this book, we're just going to spend five weeks, we're basically doing a chapter a week over the next five weeks. It's a a very practical book. James is giving very practical uh, teaching to the the Christians. Uh, uh, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's that kind of practical teaching, and uh, I hope it's going to help us uh, as we get into it over the next five weeks, help us as we start this new church year in, in September. So if you can turn to the book of James, if you're not page 716 in these Bibles. We're going to be looking at James chapter 1 and uh, thinking about the theme of being steadfast this morning. It begins like this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, who was James? Let me just give you a bit of background to James and this letter before we uh, plunge into Different Jameses, which appear in in the pages of the New Testament, so it can be a little bit confusing which James are we talking about. Probably the the James that we would most quickly think about, or the best known James, is James, who is brother of John. So James and John, two of the disciples, often appear in the in the New Testament narrative. Uh, they are particularly close to Jesus, uh, but they're also particularly troublesome. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They were always always looking for a fight, and uh, they were prominent amongst the disciples. But that James was killed early on in the history of the church. In Acts chapter 12, we read about how Herod had James executed. And the James that writes this letter is not that James the brother of John. This is actually James the brother of Jesus, who appears more intermittently in the Gospels and appears really later on in the story than the John James does. And um, you might immediately think, well, Jesus had brothers. I mean, often people can uh, choose about this don't think that Jesus had brothers, but the, uh, in Matthew we read about this, the, the Jesus is uh, teaching and the crowd say, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Uh, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Uh, Jesus, we believe, was born miraculously. He was conceived in Mary by the Spirit of God. Mary is a virgin miracle of the virgin birth but then she and Joseph carried on as a married couple normally would and they obviously had a whole bunch of sons and daughters and James was one of those natural siblings of Jesus. But it appears that James only became a follower of Jesus after the resurrection. He wasn't one of the disciples, he wasn't following around with Jesus doing Jesus' ministry. It was only after the resurrection that James really came to believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And uh, so when we get to 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he talks about how Jesus has given the gift of apostleship and how he appeared to the different apostles. And he says he appeared to Cephas at Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than five hundred, then he appeared to James, his brother. There is a, uh, a, a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his brother James that way and kind of imagine that scene. Think about James, who would grown up with Jesus, known him all his life. Suddenly Jesus, the resurrected Lord, appearing and making himself known to James, his brother, as Lord. And uh, I wonder if, with James, there's probably the kind of family dynamics going on. I wonder how, growing up, James felt about his older brother Jesus. Uh, I mean, we always think about, it'd be wonderful to be with Jesus, but I, I wonder if in the family, dynamics of family life, how James and the other brothers and sisters felt about Jesus because Jesus, I'm sure, would have been very distinct all the time. And I think about when Jesus went as a 12-year-old to Jerusalem and he's teaching the teachers. He's in the in the temple, and the teachers are amazed at the knowledge and understanding of this 12-year-old boy. And I, and of course, he was perfect. And I wonder if, if for Jesus' other brothers and sisters, that was a bit of a problem. It's always Jesus, the perfect brother. And they don't yet realize it's just Jesus, the son of God. No, he's just our big brother who never gets anything wrong. And he's so clever and he gets everything right and he's so perfect. And so I wonder if James struggled with Jesus a little bit growing up. And perhaps that's why he didn't know who Jesus was until Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection. And in that as well, we see the grace of God that uh, Jesus And bring him to this place of of leadership in the church. So, where where we get to is that James um, eventually is is actually leading the Christian church in Jerusalem alongside the Apostle Peter, and it becomes James and and Peter. These are the two key figures in the Jerusalem church. Um, James, the brother of Jesus. And we think it's that James who writes this letter. Now, of course, the the question then is well, why doesn't doesn't he introduce the letter that way? I mean, if it was me and it my, my brother, I'd say, hey, I'm James, the brother of Jesus. I mean, it gives you some kudos, doesn't it? But James doesn't do that. He says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's because um, it's not his family connection to Jesus that gives him his authority. It's actually his, his spiritual connection to Jesus. It's what Jesus has made him now, what Jesus has called him to. And that is tremendously encouraging for For us, again, it's not about our natural connection, but it's about what God calls us in, what God calls us into, that we're connected to Christ spiritually. We're born again into his, his family. And so it doesn't matter what our background is or what our parents are like or all that kind of thing. If we're called into faith in Jesus Christ, we're connected with him spiritually, regardless of our family background, our ethnicity, our social history, whatever it might be liberating and amazingly leveling, And so James wants to talk about who he is as a spiritually connected to Christ rather than the fact that Mary was his mum as well as Jesus' mum. That's wonderful. And um, there's application for us all in this room. For those of us who, who know Jesus, this is great. We're connected to Jesus in the same way that James was. And if you don't yet know Jesus, this is great as well. You can know Jesus in the same way too and be connected to him in the same way Come from doesn't matter. It's what it's what Jesus makes you that counts. And Jesus had called James and brought him into apostleship. Now, in the early years of the church, of course, the church suffered a lot. And um, the first martyr, the first Christian leader who gets killed, is is Stephen, who gets stoned to death. We read about that in Acts chapter seven. And when that happens, uh, most of the Christians living in Jerusalem, which is where the Christians were at that time, they they flee they get out of Jerusalem because it just gets too dangerous. And actually a lot of them go to Syria, which adds another poignancy to praying for Syria now. The the first, one of the early movements of Christian witness was to Syria. And we need to keep praying for that troubled land where there's been Christians for the past 2,000 years. And James writes to these scattered Christians, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's, tribes. He's talking about the people of Israel, the Jews. And at this time, the the church would have been almost entirely Jewish. And uh, James is writing from that context. And he's writing to these refugees who've been scattered out from Jerusalem into different parts of uh, what we think of as the Middle East. So this is a letter that's written to a community who are experiencing real pressure. They uh, would have been vulnerable and often exploited. If you're a refugee, and we know what this looks like now in our world, with refugees coming from Syria, if you're a refugee, you're vulnerable and you can be exploited. And these Christians who fled Jerusalem and gone into Syria and other parts of that region, they would have been vulnerable, they would have been exploited, they would have felt isolated. And James is trying to instruct them about how to live as exiles, how to live as refugees. And that's still relevant today. It's relevant, of course, for those situation where our literal refugees. It's also relevant to us uh, living here in this country, safe and secure, if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you actually are an exile. That's what the Bible would teach us. You are an exile. This isn't, in the end, the place we call home. Uh, the kind of imagery the, the Bible uh, uses to talk about this is the contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. Now, of course, Jerusalem and Babylon were actual cities. Jerusalem still exists. Babylon is now just ruins. But the Bible uses Jerusalem and Babylon both as talking about actual places, but also kind of metaphorically as, as, a, as a spiritual picture. And those of us who are Christians, we belong to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is spiritually where we belong, the city of God. So that's where the people of God belong. And uh, But at the moment, the, the, the world isn't dominated by Jerusalem, the world is dominated by Babylon. And Babylon stands for everything which is opposed to. God. Babylon st- stands for worldly values and ways of doing things. And there's these two contrasting cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. And sometimes other particular cities rise up which look a lot like Babylon. So Rome is described as being like Babylon in, in New Testament context. And we might think of particular cities in our world so as a Babylon type place. But the reality is if you're a Christian, you belong to Jerusalem but you're living in Babylon. You live in the world at this time. We're Refugees, We're exiles. We're scattered, just as these Christians were to whom James is writing. So as we go through this, I want you to have that kind of picture imagery in your mind to so really help us to understand what uh, what James is saying. So I'm going to read the rest of James chapter 1, and I'm going to, going to read it all in one hit, and I'm going to read it quite slowly. And I want you to really listen to the scripture. We believe the word of God is powerful, and uh, there's so much in here. And there's things which will apply to you. And so as I read it, have an open heart. What God, what do you want to say to me? Because I, I know certainly for me, there's all kinds of stuff here which challenges me as I seek to be a citizen of Jerusalem but as I live in Babylon. So let's read the scripture. Now to all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Help us as we look at this. I pray you'd help us to see what it means to be a steadfast people, to live as citizens of Jerusalem even while we live in Babylon. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, that we would uh, uh, we would not uh, wiggle out of the applications to us in this, in terms of being doers of the word, word as well as hearers. I pray you'd grace us in this, King Jesus. Amen. First thing, in Babylon there are trials. In Babylon there are trials. James is writing to exiles, refugees who would have known what it was to be exploited, would have known what it was to be persecuted for their faith. Minority people with a strange belief system, they would have known persecution. And James doesn't try and explain this. He doesn't try and answer the problem of suffering. That's one of the big questions for us, what about suffering? And we can spend a lot of time thinking about it and arguing about it and debating it and worrying about it. James doesn't even try and answer the question why are we suffering? Instead he just acknowledges it. And uh, we might find that a bit frustrating um, but it's like James is saying this is, experiencing trials is normal Monday morning Christianity. It's just how things are going to be. You're living as exiles, you're citizens of Jerusalem but you're living in Babylon you're going to experience trials of many kinds. Just how it is. You know, um, life is full of all kinds of and uh, that's a bit different from what James is talking about in terms of experiencing trials. We, we experience inconveniences which we might think are trials but probably aren't in terms of how James is categorizing them. You know, we get stuck in traffic and it was like a trial. And that's not really, it's an inconvenience. Uh, this, this the other day uh, in the afternoon, Ian made me a cup of coffee and he put milk in it. And I have my coffee black in the afternoon and it's kind of inconvenience really. I, I had to go and make another one. I, I said that's a great example for Sunday about the trials I'm enduring can't even have a proper cup of coffee made you know I don't have milk in the afternoons but it's not really a trial It's just a, it was not well, even really an inconvenience just to go and put the kettle on again but there's all kinds of inconveniences that happen that's not really what James is talking about he's talking about trials these are people who knew what it was to be afflicted to be exploited, financially taken advantage of and persecuted for their faith and that actually is, that's normal as well the inconveniences are normal but if you're a citizen of Jerusalem and you live in Babylon you're going to expect trials they come. They happen. Living in Babylon brings pressures. But what this does is point us towards the sovereignty of God. That trials are not only difficult and frustrating, but trials or testing, refining. What James is looking for, that these trials produce in us steadfastness, perseverance, faithfulness. The kind of perseverance that results in maturity. And that's what we need. We 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 live in many ways in a very juvenile culture, and what is needed is people who are mature, and the people of God are called to maturity. And one of the ways we learn maturity is by enduring through trials. And becoming mature through the trial, actually, James says, is better than not experiencing the trial at all. I don't know about you, but I'd always rather just not experience the trial. I'm just happy staying as I am forget the trial. But James says, no, it's better to goes through the trial in order to learn perseverance and become mature. There's all kinds of areas in life where we can think, well, we we know that happens. You go through something that's tough and in a sense it can make you a better person or can grow something in you. Um, A trivial example, uh, today there's an Ironman triathlon happening in Weymouth. My next-door neighbor is doing it and also my neighbor who lives three doors up from me. We happen to be a particularly athletic street. This mo- my neighbor woke me up this morning We well, didn't actually deliberately wake me up but I woke up because he left at 10 to 4 this morning to go to Weymouth and they were starting at 10 to 7 their swim if you don't know what an Ironman is it's a 2.4 mile swim 112 mile cycle ride and a 26.2 mile run so my neighbors would be having fun right at this moment out on their bikes why do people do that? I mean why do people do that? Th- part of the reason is you endure something and there's a sense of achievement there's a sense of it it achieves, it builds something in you. And that's a trivial example, but there's all kinds of examples of life we can think, we know, where if you do something that's hard, actually it produces something which is good. And that's really what James is saying here. You, if you endure under triumph, suffering, what it can do, it can produce in you perseverance, maturity, faithfulness, steadfastness. And really we have a choice we endure, when we endure trials, they're inevitable because we're living in Babylon, how will we respond? It, it can either lead us to learning perseverance and growing up and getting stronger, or we can allow ourselves to be crushed by it. And, and a lot of that is really well, how am I going to respond? It's really my choice, the posture I take. Uh, a picture that's always for a long time been really powerful for me is, is, is the, the way that fruit trees are pruned. I've heard me talk about this before. Uh, the time that God really clearly spoke to me, just after Grace and I were married, we, were li- we lived in Canterbury, and we lived in a little cottage on the outsides of Canterbury. Canterbury is surrounded by apple orchards, and I remember walking through the apple orchards. These little tiny trees, uh, in, in, at the pruning time, and they the, the 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 farmer was just brutalizing these trees, hacking them to down even smaller. Uh, poor little trees! But the reason they do that is because the hard pruning is what produces the felt God speak to me so clearly about this is what I was to expect for the rest of my life, to keep on being pruned. And at times that would feel hard and it would feel like I was small, but actually it was for fruitfulness. And when we undergo suffering, when there's trials, we kind of have this choice, how are we, are we going to be crushed by it or are we going to learn perseverance through it that we might be more fruitful? Living in Babylon, there are trials. Secondly, living in Babylon reveals our dependency uh, living in Babylon reveals our dependency on God. Um, this past week, Georgina, our oldest daughter, left home, and uh, that's great. It's great. It's sad. It's great because actually, what, as parents, what you're aiming to do is to bring your children to a place of independence. Children are meant to leave home. I left home when I was eighteen. My daughter's left home when she's eighteen. You're, you're meant to get to the point where you leave home. We encourage independence. And in our culture, particularly, we value our independence. But being independent is also potentially dangerous territory. And the reality is that we're all much more dependent than often we want to acknowledge. We're very dependent upon other people. We, We value our independence. We talk about being independent of thought and action and all the rest. But we can miss how dependent we are on others. We are so dependent on others. Without other people life would just unravel, but just the most essential stuff, the, the, the clothes we're wearing, the food we eat, we're dependent on somebody producing it, somebody growing it, somebody making it. And so in the end, we're all, all human beings are utterly dependent upon God because God is the one who causes the rain to fall and the crops to grow, that there might be food. God is the one who has filled the earth with minerals and amazing plants to clothe our backs and we can build things to live in and eat in. And we're utterly dependent upon other people and in the end, ultimately dependent upon God. And when we're living in Babylon, that can help reveal to us actually how dependent we are. So when we live in Babylon, and we, especially when we're undergoing trials, difficulties, that we become aware of, We're powerful. We can make our own decisions by our own way. And then something happens to us. A difficulty comes. A trial comes. And we realize, actually, no, I'm, my powers are pretty finite. Actually, my strength is pretty limited. You know what? I need some help. I need some help. Babylon reveals that. And, and for those of us who are Christians, you know, asking is a Christian posture. Asking for God's help is what we do. Jesus taught us to ask for help. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given. You know, we're meant to ask God for help. And that can be difficult for us because in in, in Babylon, you don't ask for help. Babylonians don't ask for help. Babylonians do things their way. I did it my way. The theme tune of our age. I did it my way. Babylonians don't ask for help, but Christians do. Citizens of Jerusalem ask for help and we ask. Find is that when we depend upon God and we ask in faith, that that isn't actually something which is reflects weakness. Actually, it's a, it's, it's a, it comes from strength. It's a strengthening thing. James talks here about if you ask, believe. Otherwise, you're like a wave that's tossed backwards and forwards. If we if we come to God asking, recognizing our dependence upon Him, and if we ask in faith, actually that produces a stability in us. One of the ways for us as a church to be a, a stable church rather than the people who are blown backwards and forwards by all the stuff that happens is is by asking a lot of God. And asking God a lot. And that's why we put such an emphasis one of the reasons we put such an emphasis on prayer. That I mean, when we come to pray, we don't just want to come with a shopping list. We, prayer is getting caught up in the presence of God. But as part of that, we do what Jesus commanded us to do, which is to ask where you're in need of. God's help, because actually that that really is a it's, it's a it's a it's worship, because when we worship, truly we come into God and saying, look, I recognise how much greater than I am, you are. I recognise how dependent I am upon you. God, would you help? Me? And living in Babylon can expose that, can reveal just how dependent we are, how much we need the help of God. Third thing about uh, being in Babylon. Easy to end up thinking like a Babylonian. The trouble with living in Babylon is you start to absorb Babylon's ways, and uh, a lot of the time we don't even realise it. We we swim in in the in the in the water of which our culture creates, and because it's just what we're in, we don't we don't notice we're even in it. We just absorb it without thinking about it. Uh, and, and there might be think, times when suddenly we become kind of aware of actually that you know that. The world is very different from how it's meant to be. Babylon is very different from Jerusalem. I I remember experiencing this many times when when I've been at uh, Christian camps. I mean, particularly, we don't know them now, but when we used to have a stonely Bible week, a week where we'd go away and 20,000 of us would gather. and We'd have a week together having teaching and praising Jesus and enjoying God together. And uh, I remember at times kind of leaving that where there's a big crowd of people who are all pretty focused together on Jesus. Him, and then suddenly leaving the camp at the end of the week and going back into the world. Hey, the world is a is a hostile place. People are aggressive. Driving home, and people are are not as nice to me as they were while we were in our Christian meetings. There's not the same kind of tolerance as there was when we were together. And and people's attitudes are different. And suddenly, I'm surrounded by people swearing at one another, and I didn't really hear that while I was away at the camp. And you suddenly get, oh, the water is different. And um, the trouble is that because we live in Babylon, we we often don't even notice. We just swim in it and we absorb Babylon's values. Now, this is especially the case when it comes to money. And this is the theme which runs through this letter James addresses again and again. And and for us, this is, is a challenge because we think that being rich is really positive. And of course, our whole economy is geared around making us richer. In the end, what what is the government there for? The government's there to to make us richer. That's their aim. Because the richer the people are, the more prosperous the country is, the better and the happier people will be, and the more they'll keep voting for us. That's the whole aim of our government and economy, is to make us richer. But you turn to the Bible, and you find in the Bible, the Bible is generally negative towards the rich. (laughs) The Bible doesn't have quite the same positive view towards riches as, as Babylon does. And certainly in the New Testament, if you read the word rich, often what that word actually means is wicked. <laughs> what, the, what does rich mean? It means wicked. Uh, that's much more the kind of biblical framework. I think about what Jesus, Jesus pronounces woe on the rich in Luke chapter 6, woe on the rich. And, and, and the reason that the, the New Testament has that kind of framework is, is, is because... The rich tend to put their confidence in their riches rather than God. They refuse to recognize they're dependent upon God. And that's actually a wicked place to be, because it's to refuse God himself. And also very significantly, in a New Testament world, the rich tend to take advantage of the poor. That might not operate so obviously in, 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 in our context in Britain today, but think globally still, and certainly in the world of the New Testament, the rich tend to abuse the poor, and often the rich are rich because they have abused the poor. And certainly, that's the New Testament assumption for how people got rich in that culture. And so, the Bible, when it says rich, is often thinking wicked. These are people who don't trust God and they abuse the poor, and uh, that's not good. And so, James's warning to us is: don't think like a Babylonian. Don't just assume, don't just absorb the values of the world we live in, but think differently. Have your eyes open. And it's amazing how easily we can slip into Babylonian thinking. It was funny, the other day I was down, Friday I was down Ashley Road, and a guy drove past in this fantastic Ferrari. You know, actually, I, I wouldn't even want a Ferrari. I'd feel a bit self-conscious if I had a Ferrari. I, would, I wouldn't want one. But there was just that moment as it drove past, I thought, It's so easy to slip into a Babylonian way of thinking. This is a water that we swim in. And in in Babylon, the the, the rich are overconfident and the poor are envious. And really that's the thing that James is concerned about. the, The rich trust in their riches rather than trusting in God and the poor are envious of the rich rather than trusting in God. And for the Christian, both of those positions are a mistake. We Christians, our confidence is... is in God. It's what uh, the prophet Jeremiah um, talks about. Um, There you go. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We can boast, but we boast different. And, th- and the other thing is that Babylonians not only trust in riches or envious of riches, but they follow their own desires. And the trouble is when you follow the desires of your own heart, you tend to end up in trouble. But if a Babylonian ends up in trouble for the schemes they're followed, they always look for someone else to blame. And often people want to blame God. It's God's fault in the end that this has happened to me. There's always an excuse. There's a reluctance to say, no, it's my fault. No, it's always somebody else's fault. Somebody else always to blame. And the reality is that the Babylonian lust for money and sex and power is destructive. And wrong desires lead to destruction. And we Christians aren't meant to think this way. We've got a heavenly father who doesn't change. And we're called to reflect him and be like him, be steadfast like him. We're newborn people, we're not Babylonians. And last thing about Babylon, in Babylon we are called to live as One of the amazing things about the Jewish people to this day is that they have remained distinct in their Jewishness. It is a miracle that for 4,000 years the Jewish people have remained distinct as an ethnic group, as a cultural group. And what James is urging these Christians who are Jews, and urging us who are not Jews, Gentiles, is that we remain distinct too. And that's not just that's not being different for different sake. It's about remembering who we really are, remembering that while we live in Babylon. We actually are citizens of Jerusalem. It's, it's part of the reason why this, Sunday morning, is so important. Sunday morning is is important because when we come together like this, we're, we're invited into fellowship with God. We come and worship, and sometimes we talk about our worship, but actually Christian worship is joining in with God. Father, Son, and Spirit are engaged in an eternal relationship of delight and joy. And when we come and worship, we're joining in God and His self light, and joy. We declare the word. What I'm doing now, we preach the word. It's what we're called to be shaped by. We take communion. We come and take the bread and the wine and believe in faith that we're feeding on Jesus. And Sunday is not disconnected, not meant to be disconnected from Monday to Friday, but Sunday is meant to set the pattern for the rest of the week. That how we're to live throughout the rest of the week is actually to reflect what we do here together on a Sunday. That throughout the week, we remember that we're caught up in relation with the triune God. We're caught up in his joy and delight. That we are shaped by the implanted word, as James describes it here. The word of God lives in our hearts. You know, the Jewish people still will nail uh, pieces of scripture to their doorposts to remind themselves of the word of God. The promise of the new covenant for us who've come to Jesus is that the word of God dwells in our hearts. It's what we're to be shaped by throughout the week. We, we feed on Jesus, that throughout the week we come to him and look for Him, to him for grace and help. And so there's, through the week, what we actually do is work out Sunday. Sunday gives a shape to our week, and then during the week we get to put it into practice. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Be doers of the word, not only hearers. Through the week we get to do what we hear on Sunday. Sunday is the thing which is meant to give shape to our whole existence, Because we're citizens of Jerusalem, even if we're living in Babylon. So what James is concerned about here is, hey, Christians, under pressure, scattered throughout the earth, hostile situation. Remember, your faith isn't a private matter. It's not locked away. It's the thing which defines you. You, You're living in Babylon, but you're a citizen of Jerusalem. Live that way. Be the same on Monday morning as you are. Be a Sunday morning Christian. Be a 24 7 Christian. Be steadfast. We live in the world, but we're not to be defined by the world. Hallelujah. One of the things which helps keep this in mind for us is uh, the Lord's Prayer, um, which is very much the themes which J- James picks up in this chapter we've been looking at. And uh, I'd like us to pray the Lord's prayer together and uh, then to come and take uh, bread and wine together and look for Jesus to feed and nourish us again. So uh, shall we stand together and let's let's say the Lord's prayer together and ask for him to help us. And as we say this, let's, let's think about the things which we have been uh, hearing from James, about living as citizens of Jerusalem even while we live in Babylon. And let's, let's take these words and ask for God's, work that in our hearts, and pray that tomorrow morning would we'll be steadfast and consistent. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Yes, Lord, I pray that we would, as a community together, we would model, display what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, to belong to Jerusalem, not to Babylon. I pray you'd help us to uh, move with freedom in this world, not... not, uh, by it and not weighed down by it. I pray for those here today who feel that they are experiencing trials and feeling the pressure of that. I pray that they would know your supply, Jesus. We're dependent upon you, and times of trial expose that, reveal that to us. And Jesus, you taught us here to pray and ask, "Give us this day our daily bread." And so I would ask for those today who are feeling kind of hungry in terms of their need. They would find that today you. Support day-by-day day dependence on our part, and that day-by-day day faithfulness on yours. Lord, thank you that you forgive us Lord, we live in a, in, a, in a world so corrupted by sin and yet we come to you and ask for forgiveness and you forgive and you give us this great gift of forgiveness towards others as well. And Lord, I pray you keep us in that. Lord, in Babylon it's so easy just to act like everybody else does, to fight our corner and uh, stand our ground. And I pray instead that we might be I pray we wouldn't follow the evil desires which lead to destruction, but instead that we would be those who walk in purity before you. Thank you that we, we come to you, the one who is Heavenly Father. Come to you, Jesus, our Savior, come to you, Holy Spirit, our empower, the one who gives us great assurance. And I pray that now, as we come to take bread and wine, you would feed us and nourish us. here for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning really might be the thing which defines the rest of our week rather than the other.